Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we train a model of weird and wonderful science in your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. For another AI edition, you'll hear part two of Toby Walsh talking about machines behaving badly. This time about autonomous weapons and rights for AI. But next up, here's some news about AI speeding things up. Twenty-five thousand times faster. Calculating the behaviour of many interacting electrons in a lattice has been a quantum physics problem that needed over a hundred thousand equations to solve. But now an artificial intelligence program has been used to cut that down to just four equations. This means any of these kinds of calculations is now twenty-five thousand times faster without any new computer hardware. The work was done by researchers at the Flatiron Institute at the Simons Foundation, a community of scientists in New York City who use computational tools to advance science. When two electrons occupy the same lattice site, they interact, causing useful phenomena such as superconductivity, where electrons flow through a material without resistance. When electrons interact, they can become quantum mechanically entangled. This means that even once they're far apart on different lattice sites, the two electrons can't be treated individually. Instead, physicists must deal with all the electronics at once, rather than one at a time. With more electrons, more entanglements crop up, making the computational challenge exponentially harder. One way of studying a quantum system is what's called a renormalization group. That's a mathematical mechanism physicists use to look at how the behaviour of a system, such as electrons in a lattice, changes when researchers modify various properties. The problem is that it needs hundreds of thousands to millions of equations. Each equation represents a pair of electrons interacting. The team reduced the number of equations using a neural network machine learning program. The machine learning program creates connections within the full-size renormalization group. The neural network then tweaks the strengths of these connections until it finds a small set of equations that generates the same solution as the original, jumbo-sized renormalization group. It discovered a hidden pattern that humans couldn't see that gave just four equations for the same results. The software took weeks to train, but now that it works, they can use it for other quantum physics problems without having to train again. As well as speeding up research into new materials, the same technique could be used in other fields that use the renormalizing group trick, such as cosmology and neuroscience. The paper was titled Deep Learning the Functional Renormalization Group and was published in Physical Review Letters.
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Should artificial intelligences be handed weapons and a license to kill? Where nothing, nothing can possibly go wrong. Go wrong. Raw. Go wrong. Oh my God. Shut down. Shut down immediately. Should they have rights? Toby Walsh is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. He's written a book titled Machines Behaving Badly, looking at all the ethical challenge that artificial intelligence throws at us. I spoke with Toby by Zoom, and I continued our conversation by asking... And then on the nastier side of things, there's the whole movement of autonomous weapons and the military really getting in on this stuff. Yes, that, that is something that really does keep me awake at night, the idea that, that we will be handing over killing the decision as to who lives and who dies to machines, machines that are imperfect, machines that will, it will be a, a step change in how, how we fight war. I mean, the sense that humans won't be able to work at the speeds, we'll need, won't be able to work 24-7, it's been rightly called, I think, the third revolution in warfare. And I have, you know, spoken half a dozen times at the UN about the risks of taking us down that world. And sadly, we see that happening today. We see that on our TV screens. We see the conflict in Ukraine, for example, how increasingly drones with increasing autonomy are being used for, to very good effect, changing the way that we fight war. And it, it is something where, you know, there have been a bunch of nations have called for regulation. And I think ultimately we will have to, you know, there are lots of technologies that we've regulated, chemical weapons, biological weapons, even nuclear weapons. And I'm sure we're going to get to a point where we decide that we need to regulate autonomous weapons. It, it, it will take us to a, a dreadful world where we're outsourcing the killing to these machines. It will lower the barriers to war. There are a host of moral, legal, technical challenges they pose. I mean, as, as, as another example, one of the challenges is one, and one that we've already seen is one of attribution. Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult to know who's attacking you when you've got autonomous weapons. And indeed, there had been a, dr a drone attack on a base in Syria where it's not clear who was behind the attack because these drones, even if you shoot them down, where you look inside them and they've got you know some American chips in them, well, it doesn't tell you who was behind the attack. So, and then, you know, you've been attacked and you're not 100% sure who's been attacking you, then how can you possibly respond? So they're going to be a terribly disruptive weapon. And you mentioned in the book some suggestions for possibly making it a little bit more moral where you might have an AI working with a human to stop them accidentally shooting civilians, for example. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I think there's, there's, there is there's there is an important role for technology in the battlefield i mean i'm not someone who, who works with the military but you know i'm aware there are there are plentiful good ways that you can use the technology to make the world a slightly better place so uh, one example slightly different example is clearing mines i don't think anyone should ever risk a life or limb clearing a minefield again we can send a robot in if it goes wrong the robot gets blown up and we go and get another robot and Everyone is is happy with that, and as, and as you mentioned, the, the the other example is that we can put autonomy in weapons, but on, in a one sided way. So there are plentiful, you know, there's the fog of war, the fact that plentiful people get killed in war. Um, there's lots of you know blue on blue attacks, and um, lots of innocent civilians get caught in the crossfire. Well, if we make our weapons smarter, 
maybe we can we can stop that happening we can actually put um, you know something that on the weapon that in the right situation says um, wait a second that does not seem to be an enemy that's not a um, something i think you want to do um, obviously that's a reverse decision to actually handing over to the machine the ability to say okay you can i'm going to give you complete control and you can decide who to kill um it's deciding who not to kill and obviously again you know it's going to be difficult to be 100% perfect but you know anything you do in the situation of preventing killing innocent people people who are bystanders to the conflict it is a saved life so you know even if you're slightly imperfect you've saved some lives so the imperfection is is not as critical as in the other direction where you know if you're killed 50% of the wrong people well that that is a, a very poor outcome and then at the other extreme you've got people concerned about robot rights and artificial intelligence needing to be protected from people in the future there's a ai robot sophia who's been given citizenship in uh, is it saudi arabia saudi arabia where women don't have the same rights as the robot does. Yes, where women aren't even allowed to to drive. And yes, not allowed to you know leave the country without the approval of their consort and so on. Yes, it's 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 somewhat ironic in a country where where human rights are very limited and those that um, that you know we find quite disagreeable in, here in the West that robots have been given more rights than the women. At the moment, uh, you know, robots shouldn't have any rights. I, after this broadcast, I can go back to my laboratory. I can take my robot apart, diode by diode, and no one cares, and that rightly so, because you know, no one is suffering, and that's a fine thing. And while robots have no sentience, robots have no emotions, robots don't experience pain. I don't think we should be giving them rights. Indeed, giving them rights actually commits a moral harm because it means that that we're going to impose upon the rights of humans who get in the way of those robot rights and and so that's actually a bad thing it, it does of course you know take us into a conversation about well will robots at any point become sentient conscious experience pain and that's not you know clear certainly robots today don't have anything like that and it's not clear if they ever will and I always say, you know, I think it will be, you know, it's a saving grace. Hopefully they never will, because then we'll never have to worry about these difficult moral questions. But it's something, you know, that we will have to entertain possibly at some point. As an example, I mean, pain is a useful is a useful concept. You, uh, if your hand is put into the flame, you withdraw it because of the pain, not because you realize that you're, you don't have time to think about the, the, da- the the damage being caused to your hand, it's just the pain, you immediately, re- your reflex is to pull back your hand from the flame. And so it would be good if you build a robot for it not to be damaged, but if it had similar mechanisms in place, so you might try and give it something like artificial pain, so it protected itself and made sure it wasn't easily damaged. But at that point, then, we do have to ask this question, moral question, as to, well, does... Should we be careful about trying to avoid inflicting pain? Because most things that experience pain, not just us, but, you know, animals as well, we do tend to give various rights to, and rightly so, because we don't like to see other things suffer. And so if robots are starting to suffer, then we will have to worry about ensuring that they have limited amounts of suffering. I think, you know, the important thing to realize is that 
while artificial intelligence is trying to build intelligence and machines and the human brain, uh, we you know compared to trying to build something like the human brain, it is only a metaphor. And I think the intelligence that we build in machines is quite different to human intelligence. There's no, no reason to suppose that it's going to be the same. There are you know other ways of achieving intelligence. There are other animals, for example, intelligent, and they look quite different to us. And I think we're easily fooled into thinking that intelligence in machines is going to be very much like our human intelligence because, because of our own human experience. I mean, the, when you open your eyes in the morning and you experience your life being intelligent and thinking about problems, you, it's, it's natural to suppose that the intelligence in machines might be something like that, whereas actually it's going to be, I suspect, um, quite different. And indeed, the limited intelligence we can build today is quite different. And I, so I, I like to remind people that when we talk about artificial intelligence, we sort of focus on the intelligence, the eye bit of it. And we forget there's that other word, uh, artificial in front, which actually increasingly, I think, plays a very important role to remind us it's very artificial, very different type of intelligence. And, uh, you know, an example of uh, some other type of intelligence um, uh, I talk about in the book is o- the octopus, in- incredibly intelligent animal. Uh, it can, you know, as an example of intelligence, often one of the measures of intelligence is, can you use tools? Well, an octopus can use a tool. It can open a screw top jar and get food from inside the screw top jar. Um, supposedly, um, octopuses, people who work with scientists who work with octopuses claim that they can recognize different people's faces. They have very distinctive characters. They get given different names to reflect their different characters, their famous escapologists, um, they seem to be very smart, very conscious of their surroundings. But their brains are you know, completely different than ours. I mean, 60% of their brain is in their legs, right? So very distributed intelligence and evolve completely separately to ours. I mean, they're invertebrates, we're mammals, the different part of the animal tree. So they've, they've evolved that intelligence completely differently to us. And I think that's a, a good way to think about artificial intelligence is that it's going to be you know, something more akin to octopus intelligence than human intelligence, perhaps. And and to come back to these moral questions, you wouldn't allow an octopus to be in charge of a car or a machine gun. And therefore, I don't think we should allow an artificial intelligence to be in charge of a car or at least be legally in charge of a car or a machine gun. Well, Toby Walsh, thank you very much. Been my pleasure. That was the second and final part of my interview with Professor Toby Walsh from the University of New South Wales about the ethical challenges out of artificial intelligence and his new book, Machines Behaving Badly. I've been playing with AI. Artificial intelligence has been progressing very quickly in the last year, and even faster as some of the projects have been released into the public domain so anybody can play with them and improve them. AI is being used to discover new drugs. It's being used to enhance, upscale and colourise photos and videos from very low resolution to high resolution, and even turn dark video into bright video to see in the dark. It's being used to transcribe audio to text, and to turn text prompts into visual art and fake photos. Artificial intelligence systems can phone a hairdresser to make a booking for you. AI can be used to make deep fake voices and videos of celebrities and drive cars and mining trucks. Computer central processing units, CPUs, are just not fast enough, so researchers use graphics processing units. The GPUs at the heart of graphics cards used by gamers. 
Until recently, you could also use the speed of graphics cards to mine the Ethereum cryptocurrency and literally make money. This raised the demand for the cards, and therefore the price went up. Now that Ethereum changed to proof of stake, and you can't use fast graphics cards to mine Ethereum, or in fact anything to mine Ethereum, it was hoped that the prices would go down. Unfortunately, they have not. However, you can run some of the software slowly on a CPU, or you can run it quickly online. Your choices online are the simple web interfaces for either free or paid services that have fast graphic processors in their data centers, or you can rent time on cloud graphics processors, which exist physically in data centers. I've been watching the YouTube channel Two Minute Papers by Karoly Zolnai Fey, who is based in Hungary. He explains the latest in artificial intelligence research in just a few minutes, in a way that's easy to understand. It's amazing stuff, with improving photos and videos like something out of Blade Runner. Then he got onto DAL-E, which was a way of turning text sentences or prompts into pictures. At first, Google and the other companies weren't going to release their work to the public, just show off the results. But then they started licensing it to companies that ran websites. You could enter prompts for a limited time for free or pay a subscription fee to use the software for as long as you like. For Diffusion Science Radio, I need to have pictures I can use without violating copyright for the Community Radio Network, YouTube thumbnails, and for the DiffusionRadio.com website. I've previously been using GIMP, the free Photoshop-style image editing software, and of course, when I have interviews, I ask people for permission to use their photos. However, for the episodes when I don't have interviews, I started going to Mini Dali and Crayon and Mage.Space to generate images I could legally use for the show, editing the results in GIMP to get more relevant pictures. Then I finally learned that Cloud's graphics processor rental at Google Colab had a free tier that I could use. I could just click through links to the GitHub software archives I've used for years, but for artificial intelligence software, they provide a Google Colab link. If I clicked on that, I could use cloud graphics processors for free on Google, for a bit, every few days. I watched some tutorial videos on Stable Diffusion Dreambooth. This software lets you upload some images of something outside the general image data set Stable Diffusion is trained on. Something you'd like the software to make art about, like you. I uploaded some images of myself, following the YouTube tutorials, although I did a bad job of sizing them to the recommended 512 by 512 pixel photos. I'm sure I can get better results next time. After training the software, I was able to create some art with myself as the star. Most didn't quite look like me, or they looked close but more like a relative, or even the actor that might play me in a Hollywood movie. I picked the best ones and uploaded them to Instagram. Some of the best were images in comic book styles. For the Nobel Prize edition of Diffusion, I used Dreambooth to generate fake photos of me holding a Nobel Prize, and used the best one on the website and the YouTube thumbnail. The face is a more aged version of me, not quite right, dressed in a tuxedo in a room full of books, holding out my Nobel Prize. I picked the image that showed the more accurate looking Nobel Prize, even though the face wasn't quite right, although it is recognisably me. I'll be making more art for Diffusion as I learn the skills and train the software better. 
Because the Stable Diffusion text-to-image software is open source and fun to use, many, many people around the world have not only been using it to generate art, but also improving and extending the software. So by adding new modules to the software, they now allow something called in-painting, where if the face is wrong or the hands are mutated or something's not there that you want to be there or you want to get rid of something, you can highlight that area and give a text instruction for what you want it changed to. Or you can outpaint, which lets you extend the background or even join the backgrounds of two different pictures together. I'm hooked, and I'll be making more art and keeping track of all the changes and improvements. Who knows? Maybe I can offer a service to train up a model of you based on photos you send me and sell you a range of art based on your face. Or photos of you skydiving, visiting all the world's capitals, or dancing on the moon. Of course, I need to either buy an NVIDIA graphics card or subscribe to a cloud graphics processor service. I have trouble transcribing interviews. It gives me a massive headache. For my deaf and hard of hearing listeners, YouTube offers an artificial intelligence transcription as closed captions. They're better than nothing, but not very accurate. So this week I played with using OpenAI's Whisper speech recognition software as a transcriber. I've installed the software on my PC and laptop. Without a graphics processor, it runs very, very slowly. But it does work. It's quite accurate in understanding accents, but it's not very good with some scientific language or slurred speech. Descript is in between. It's not as accurate as Whisper, but it's so fast that it probably uses an online server somewhere. It's better than YouTube. Descript also offers an editor that lets you label the voices in a recording and then highlights the words it suspects have got wrong, allowing you to correct them. It's more work than Whisper, but the ability to label the speakers and to easily edit the mistakes is very good. So far, no massive headaches. Hopefully we're not too far away from being able to run something like Whisper with some extra modules over all my audio files quickly producing text transcription with the speakers labelled, and 100% accuracy on the words. If people are too slow to run with this, I may have to look into taking the free AI course at elementsofai.com and joining the communities improving the software myself. In discussing the problem of simulating the human brain on a computing machine, we must carefully distinguish between the accomplishments of the past and what we hope to do in the future. Certainly the accomplishments of the past have been most impressive. We have machines that will translate to some extent from one language to another, machines that will prove mathematical theorems, machines that will play chess or checkers, sometimes even better than the men who designed them. These, however, are in the line of special purpose computers aimed at particular specific problems. What we would like in the future is a more general computing system capable of learning by experience and forming inductive and deductive thoughts. This would probably consist of three main parts. In the first place, there would be sense organs akin to the human eye or ear, whereby the machine can take cognizance of events in its environment. In the second place, there would be a large general purpose flexible computer programmed to learn from experience, to form concepts, and capable of doing logic. In the third place, there will be output devices, devices in the nature of the human hand, capable of allowing the machine to make use of the thoughts that it had, of the cognitive processes, in order to actually affect the environment. 
work is going on on all of these fronts simultaneously, and rapid progress is being made. I confidently expect that within 10 or 15 years, we will find emerging from the laboratories something not too far from the robot of science fiction fame. In any case, whatever the result, this is certainly one of the most challenging and exciting areas of modern scientific work. Exciting and challenging, but doesn't it worry? Well, sure it worries me. But you know, the problems posed by the computer are really no different than the problems we have with other products of technology. It's going to take a great deal of wisdom on our part to manage them, but if we do, we're going to make a much better world. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. And rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and... 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.